wonderful morning. I want to, um, let me see. Before we, yeah, I wanna, before we have any words. Um, I'm so excited about today and about what we're going to study. You know, last week we studied John the Baptist. And really, Jesus' ministry all hinged on the coming of John the Baptist, him preparing the way of the Lord, and Jesus' baptism. Uh, Walt, as you see, is not here today. He and Barbara uh, are in Atlanta because they had a wedding. One of our own, uh, uh, Kathy and Jim Adams' son Spencer, is, got married in Atlanta, and so they're officiating the wedding. And once again, I am fortunate enough to have gleaned from all of Walt's scholarship and presenting, this is sort of classic Walt, but with my mouth. So um, <laughs> all of this is Walt's work and scholarship, and so I wanted to make sure that he got credit for all of this and not me. Uh, though I'll throw in my two cents worth when I get a chance. But anyway, this is, this is all Walt. So anyway, last week, let's talk about what you talked about last week. John the Baptist. Um, just a, a little recap so that it puts everything in context if you weren't here last week. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And the wilderness, as you all know, is the traditional place where Jewish people met and experienced God. Uh, Moses with the burning bush. Uh, through the Exodus, the people of Israel, of God, were roaming in the wilderness for 40 years, and God's presence was very heavy with them there. So the, the wilderness is the traditional place where people have met and experienced God, the prophets and such. So John the Baptist had positioned himself on a major trade route um, and the traditional site where Israel entered the promised land. So you can see... If I can get my little doodad working here, I guess you can't. Bethany across the Jordan is where the Israelites camped before entering to the promised land and then crossed over there. And so John the Baptist symbolically plants himself there to do the baptisms. When, he's, when he is doing his ministry, he positions himself there. And, um, and it's where Israel made the covenant before entering the promised land. They reestablished and reaffirmed their covenant with God to be faithful to God. And so this is very symbolic for John. He's preaching this apocalyptic message of God's impending action with Sodom as the backdrop. So as you're standing in Bethany across the Jordan and looking upward toward the, the Jordan, Sodom... The, the area that would have been Sodom and Gomorrah would have been in the backdrop for this. And so uh, those who came to him would be very aware of this. And so he's dressed in what we'd call the uniform of a prophet. He has this mantle, this hairy, rough uh, uh, mantle and coat on, much like Elijah. And he is the first prophet to appear in Israel in nearly 500 years. So again, symbolically, he's standing where prophets have stood. He's dressed the part. Um, so folks know this guy means business. He's come dressed like Elijah. And his dress, of course, would have evoked the expectation that the prophet Elijah had returned, which was the promise that before the Messiah, that the prophet Elijah would come back. And so the one, so Elijah then is the one prophet that Malachi says heralds the arrival of God's kingdom. And so he evokes this presence of Elijah and that God's kingdom is on its way in and we're going to cross the Jordan into the promised land to bring in that kingdom. 
So his location where he is is going to reinforce this belief and being near the place where Elijah had ascended. So all this one spot, all of this symbolism is very strong there. And so the, the people who would come and hear John would definitely see and, and this would just resonate with them. And it's where um, this, this spot in Bethany across the Jordan, it's where the Jewish tradition expected Elijah to return. And so here we go, someone dressed like Elijah. Uh, he, he looks and acts like Elijah, and it's where Elijah is expected to return. Now the interesting thing, is that he is uh, standing in the Jordan, and he is offering a baptism of forgiveness of sins. And as you all know, in this, in this day, one comes to where to have their sins forgiven? To the temple. And you usually bring something with you for that, right? A sacrifice. So a sacrifice is made for the forgiveness of sins. Um, but John is offering forgiveness of sins without the temple, without sacrifice. Um, and so there could be a problem here. What do you think the temple authorities would think about this? They don't mention this in the gospel stories, but Josephus did talk about how uh, the temple authorities were not pleased. And it's probably part of what got John the Baptist in trouble. He lost his head, so to speak. So, so we find that he's there and huge crowds are flocking to him. And then Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And, of course, this is the event in all the, the Gospels, the baptism of Jesus, whether it's by water or the Holy Spirit. This is the event that launches Jesus' ministry. And so that's where we're going to pick up this morning, Jesus' baptism. So the earliest and simplest form of the story of Jesus' baptism is found in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the first Gospel writer, probably wrote around 70, and um, he's the first one to discuss the baptism. So let's hear what he has to say. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. He gets right into it. Baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is such a familiar story and, and such striking imagery. We see him, Jesus is coming up out of the water. The heavens are torn apart. The, uh, the spirit descends like a dove. And then this voice speaking from heaven. And so this is not, as Walt would say, is not the language of a history lesson. This is theological language. This has lots of deep-rooted theological imagery. And so the scene is fraught with religious symbolism that we're going to see woven through the Old Testament and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the imagery is taken from scripture. So let's look at this. The location where the baptism takes place, of course, is highly symbolic. We've already seen that. Entering the promised land, entering this, what will become this new kingdom of God. But the water itself also carries a meaning in much deeper than that of just being um, ritually cleansed. You know, uh, that was real big in the day. 
John is baptizing in the age of what's known as the mikvah, or ritual cleansing. But in the first century, water was not just linked to ritual purity. Uh, what we find is that it was also linked to much, much more than that. Uh, it's linked to forgiveness, to salvation, and to the gift of God's spirit. As you know, in creation, the spirit of God hovered uh, over the waters of creation. And so water and spirit are always closely tied in scripture. And so let's read it from Ezekiel. So the prophet says, I will sprinkle through God. God says through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. A new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you. So this has gone beyond ritual cleanliness to God's spirit being linked with the water that's sprinkled on the people so that God's spirit lives anew and lives in their heart. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've got several quotations from the Dead Sea Scrolls that are going to link and tell us the same thing. That water and baptism and forgiveness and atonement and receiving of the spirit, um, all of those were closely related. So here are now some of these things that come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. From the community rule or the manual of discipline, we read this. By the Spirit are the ways of a man atoned for. By the Spirit of holiness he is cleansed from all iniquities. So not from animal sacrifice, but by Spirit. And of course, even in that day, we would think if we brought a sacrifice that God's Spirit would intervene on our behalf. But it's by the Spirit the ways of a man are atoned for. By the Spirit of holiness, he is cleansed from all his iniquities. His flesh is cleansed by sprinkling the water of purification, and he is sanctified with the water of cleanness. So we have the Spirit of God and water of purification closely aligned. And then from the community rule or the manual of discipline, we also read, God will cleanse him with the Spirit of holiness from all evil deeds. And will sprinkle upon him the spirit of faithfulness, like the water of purification. Like the water of purification. God is going to cleanse and sprinkle us. It's, a, it's symbolic. Like the water of purification. And then from the Thanksgiving scroll. You have sprinkled your Holy Spirit upon me. You have sprinkled your Holy Spirit upon your servant. And so all of this fits with the story of Jesus' baptism, um, John's baptism by water. It's all linked to the receiving of God's spirit to empower Jesus to do his ministry on earth. And this didn't just come from John the Baptist. Um, this was common understanding in first century Judaism. So, so this would, would have all fit together. It would have all made sense. But now we're going to get all of this in the wilderness with John and not from the temple. And it fulfilled a promise that was given, of course, by the prophet Joel that we read every year during Ash Wednesday. Then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's much, much more. Okay. In the story of Jesus' baptism 
as we remember, the heavens are torn apart. And this is very symbolic also. There's, there's this great voice from heaven with a very specific message. So when we say that the heavens were torn apart, again, this is, we can see this language of theophany. When the, um, when the Hebrews are in the wilderness and they're led by a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, that is symbolic of God's presence. God is present with them in, in those means. So that is a theophany. God present in something specific that you, that's tangible. Uh, when Moses goes to the burning bush, the burning bush is a theophany. And so the heavens are torn apart. And this too is the language of theophany, saying that God is present. We have removed the barrier from heaven to earth. The heaven is torn apart. And God's spirit is able to descend and be present with Jesus. Heaven touches earth in that moment. And so it reinforces this image of the spirit descending like a dove. And it's another way of saying the same thing, that God is present. God is present in that moment and in that action. But it's the voice that really tells us what's happening and what is going on. And the voice is not something, again, this isn't, the words that are said are not words that are new. These are words that those who might have heard or those that are reading the story or if you're telling the story of the baptism, they would recognize that these words of the voice of God quote scripture. And the scripture, this is my beloved son, the first half of that statement comes from Psalm 2-7. And Psalm 2 is what is known as a royal enthronement psalm. It's what was, what was sung or stated or played when the king was uh, being, during the coronation. You know, you're about to put the crown on your head, and these are the words that are said. These are the words spoken during the coronation of a king. And also during the coronation of a king, one is anointed. The pro- a prophet would uh, lay hands on the king and anoint the king, and that's where the word Messiah comes from. So the king is seen as a Messiah. And so this is seen that the Spirit is coming down and anointing Jesus. And when we hear the words, this is my son, my beloved son, these are the same words that are sung at a king's coronation. And so God is proclaiming Jesus king. As we continue in that psalm, it says, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord he has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So according to Mark, at his baptism, Jesus is anointed king or the Messiah by God and God's son, just as the king was known as God's son. David was known as God's son. And this is the time and the place right here at the Jordan River with John baptizing him where Jesus receives his divine commission to be an agent through whom the kingdom of God is now going to be realized. What is the world going to be like? The kingdom of heaven on earth, that kingdom of heaven has now come down to earth. What would earth be like? What would we live like? The kingdom were truly on earth, and Jesus represents that. All of his actions represent what God would have us do, and the kingdom is being inaugurated now with Jesus' baptism. Then we, so he says, this is my beloved son. 
And then the second half of the statement, with whom I am well pleased, also comes from Scripture, but it's not from the psalm. It comes from Isaiah 42. And this part of Scripture from the prophet Isaiah tells us of what kind of king Jesus is going to be. So let's hear from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick will not, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So what kind of Messiah? Not going to be a loud mouth. He's not going to be one that rules harshly. A reed he will not break. A dim, a dim wick he will not quench. He's going to be one that leads in peace. And so what kind of Messiah? He's going to be a very different kind of Messiah, a servant Messiah. He's not going to be a warrior. He's not going to be the kind of Messiah that the first century Judaism was expecting. They wanted someone to come in and kick the tail of Rome, right, and get them out of our hair. But this is not what is expected. And those words, um, with whom I am well pleased, tells us a lot about what kind of king Jesus is going to be. And this is so central to Jesus' ministry that those words are going to be repeated again word for word um, in the story of the transfiguration up on the mountain. You remember that? Again, they go up on the mountaintop, and Elijah is there, and Moses is there, and Jesus is there. And, and Peter says, wow, this is really cool. Why don't we just hang out here a while, and we'll build, we'll build some booths, and, and this is a great, a great thing. And the, again, the heavens are torn open. And uh, a voice comes and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So this is repeated twice. If we didn't get it the first time, then we'll get it again. Again, on the, on the mountain, this cloud comes around and there's another theophany. So, so as it now stands then, the story of the baptism is less about this historical accuracy and this historical narrative um, and it's more about, it's more a theological treatise. It's more of a theological um, symbolism and theological story about who Jesus is and the meaning of what his later ministry is going to be about. It's, it tells us a lot from these few words. And all of this, this treatise is, wove, is woven from images taken from several Old Testament scriptures. So, what actually happened? Well, since Mark is the first story we mark is the first story and we see jesus's baptism also in uh, luke and matthew slightly in john we we believe that this is this was a historical event that jesus really was baptized by john because um we find it in mark mark is the first one and we'll we'll talk a little bit more later about why others sort of downplayed the bet with each gospel um the baptism by John gets downplayed more and more, and we'll talk about why. In the earliest gospel in Mark, the baptism there is, is seen as a private experience of Jesus. We always think about the crowds being around and John baptizing, uh, you know, hundreds of people, and in the middle of that, Jesus comes, and everybody sees this happening. But if we look at the words, it's really seen as a private experience of Jesus. It says, he saw the heavens torn open, and he heard 
you are my son. Uh, and so since Mark is our earliest and most ancient source um, and describes the event as a private experience of Jesus, um, and, and because there's not consistency in the way this is described in the other Gospels, many scholars believe that it's most likely that, that this was a visionary, perhaps a visionary experience of Jesus that lies behind the story. That, yes, he was baptized by John, but perhaps this was a visionary experience. We don't know, but it is described. We do hear about it in all the other Gospels. And that later Christ, Christian reflection added to the story, and with each Gospel it's changed somewhat for different reasons that we'll, we'll see. Because... It appears that some of the other gospel writers are a little bit embarrassed by the fact that Jesus was actually baptized by John. I've had people come and say to me before, why was Jesus baptized? He didn't need to be baptized because he didn't need to be forgiven of his sins. And so we're going to mine that just a little bit. Uh, Jesus' baptism is one of the most solid historical events we have. Again, because it's first related in Mark, we hear about it in all the gospels. It's just altered in each one just a little bit. So we know that Jesus was baptized, and yet there's something very strange in the way the other gospel writers handle the event. Uh, it appears that all four gospel writers find the baptism of Jesus by John just a little troubling, some more than others, um, so much so that they either have to explain it away or some sort of, by the way they word things, deny that John baptized Jesus at all. There's not a denial, it's just not stated. And so we'll see how this works. Um, it, his baptism by John is so objectionable to some that each of the writers goes out of their way to sort of play it down. And with each successive writer, it's played down more and more. Um, and they play down John's role especially. So Mark mentions that Jesus was baptized by John, but clearly the focus of the narrative is not on John. Uh, it's on Jesus and it's on the Spirit. And then in Matthew, John protests. So we, we get as we go to the next story, John says, no, 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 I shouldn't baptize you. Um, and he tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. Uh, so we read from Matthew. John would have prevented him, this means prevented Jesus from coming to him and being baptized. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Oh my, you know, we, we can't have this. It's much like um, the disciples when Jesus in the Gospel of, of John, Jesus takes off uh, and ties a towel around his waist and said, I'm going to wash your feet. And they all say, oh no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And then by the end, he has them convinced that it's the thing to do. So John says, um, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. He said, just trust me here. This is, we just need to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Luke has the most creative way of dealing with uh, Jesus being baptized. And he has John thrown in prison just before the baptism, or just before he mentions the baptism. Uh, so this is what Luke says. So we find that, G that John is baptizing in the Jordan, and he has these crowds of people coming to him. But then we hear in Luke, But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by John of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Remember, John 
speaks out because Herod has taken his brother's wife and he tells him how wicked he is and so he he has him thrown in jail and then just after this we hear the words or see the words now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus and when Jesus also had been baptized um, so before Jesus is baptized the words say Herod has John thrown into jail, and then he says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, then, then the ministry begins. And so the implication could be, okay, so here's Walt and I, are, we're, okay, Walt says, the implication is that there is no way John could have baptized Jesus. I would say, this is Susan, I would say it's, am, it's very ambiguous. When all the people had been baptized, were they baptized before John was put into prison or after John was put into prison? Was Jesus baptized by John or by somebody else? It doesn't say. I find it ambiguous. Walt would say the implication is that John did not baptize Jesus. Luke's implication is that because he was in jail. Um, so in John's gospel then, so we've got Mark and Matthew, um, and that was Luke. See, we're getting further away from John the Baptist. In John's gospel, Jesus isn't even, he's not baptized by water at all. Uh, and the words of Jesus heard at his baptism are presented as something heard by John at another time. Um, so in John 1, we read, And John testified, I saw the, the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So Jesus is baptized by the Holy Spirit, but, but John isn't mentioned as having baptized him. So we're getting, the, the writers are, are like separating John and Jesus more and more the, from the baptism. So it's clear that the baptism of Jesus, for some reason, was a little embarrassing to early Christians. But why is this so problematic? Well, there's a few reasons. Uh, two things seem to have clearly bothered Christians about the baptism. Uh, first, by submitting to John for baptism, Jesus could appear to be inferior to John, that the one who's, that there's, that John would be greater because he was baptizing him. Um, so is Jesus inferior to John because he submits to John's baptism? Um, three of the gospel writers are motivated to deny this, and Mark clearly says that Jesus was baptized by John, but he's also clear that Jesus is more important than John when he says these words. John proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy even to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. So John is proclaiming this in Mark. I'm not worthy. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so in Matthew, we find... Um, John protesting and saying that he needs to be baptized by Jesus. And then in John's gospel, uh, even John acknowledges that Jesus is superior when he says, he must increase, John speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So I've come with this great ministry, but I'm going to kind of back out now. And I've, I have prepared the way. Now it's time for Jesus to take over. Now Luke takes this to a whole new level. You remember we, we just came out of Christmas and we talked about the Christmas narratives and how the Christmas narratives really start earlier 
with not just Jesus being born, but with Elizabeth and Zechariah, John the Baptist is going to acknowledge Jesus as being superior to him even before he's born. Remember, uh, from his mother's womb, we find that in Luke uh, 1, 41 through 44, Elizabeth, um, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So we have the babies acknowledging each other before they're born, and John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb, acknowledging that, that Jesus is the Messiah even then. And then she goes on to say, And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. So historically, we know that John's movement, that John had lots of followers, a lot of disciples, and that movement survived even after his death and even became a competing movement with the Jesus movement. Um, And so we see this decades later in the... In the book of Acts, in Acts 18 and then Acts 19, I'm just going to read to you just a little bit from there. Um, The Apostle Paul has planted churches, and there was another, another, um, not apostle, but a teacher, who's come through to some of these churches, and his name is Apollos. And Apollos has gone to Corinth, and he has taught... And he's taught about Jesus, and people have been coming to to Christ. They've been coming to the Lord. And what we find is that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. So we have disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they answered, Into John's baptism. So even in Corinth, this, uh, John's disciples have gone and they've prepared the way and they've talked about John. They've talked about Jesus, but they've really baptized sort of in the name of John or John's baptism of repentance. So, um, and so then what we find is that Paul then says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So we've got John the Baptist has his own movement. And, of course, his points to Jesus, but we find that they became sort of, in some areas, competing movements. So we had to readdress what's going on. And so that's why we think that these, the scholars, with each, with each gospel, we, we separate John just a little bit more to show that, Jane, that Jesus is more elevated. And so we're getting further and further away from John's message. Okay, and so this would explain why John's role is downplayed in each successive gospel. Now, the second problem, not that it would appear that that Jesus is less than John, but the second one we've already mentioned was that John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. And, of course, that could imply that Jesus was a sinner who needed forgiveness. And the early church said, well, that's, that's not the case. And so it would be problematic for early Christians. 
So why would Jesus submit to John's baptism for forgiveness of sins? Um, And why did Jesus go to John to be baptized? Did he feel like he needed to be forgiven for anything? Well, obviously, we would say no. Uh, But in first century Judaism, we can get clues as to why Jesus may have gone to John and submitted to be baptized by him for the forgiveness of sins. And we tend to think, of course, his forgiveness of sins as personal and private and individual sins. I, you know, I was mean to my mom and, you know, I was ugly and so I need to be forgiven. But if, so if Jesus was baptized for the forgiveness of sins, then he must have sinned. But that would not have been the case. First century Jews, for even for them personally, this was not always the case. They could confess sin that they took no part in. It would be sin of the community or sin as the nation as a whole. Uh, they could confess sins of the nation. They could even confess their sins that their ancestors committed centuries before they lived. I mean, you read that we read this in the Bible. You know, you say... Um, that you brought it, we still say, when you, you read Deuteronomy, you brought us out of Egypt. Well, the people who were saying that have never even, were never even slaves in Egypt. These are generations later. So you could confess something that your ancestors did to bring it back so that you realize and say, this, we must never let this happen again. So they confessed the sins of the nation. In Jeremiah 14, we see we acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our ancestors, for we have sinned against you. We are part of what they did. We have sinned against you. And we find this in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. And the Levites shall recite the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their blameworthy offenses and their sins, and all those who enter the covenant shall confess after them, and they shall say, We have acted sinfully. We have transgressed. We have sinned. We have committed evil. We and our fathers before us. And so then a bizarre thing happens. This passage goes on to narrate that the sins of Israel has committed across the century. And so this means that from a first century Jewish perspective, Jesus could be baptized for the forgiveness of sins that he never committed. They aren't his sins. He is taking on or confessing the sins of of the nation and so of course if we think about Jesus dying on the cross he's dying for the sins of the world and he's living in solidarity with those of us who have sinned and so he is being baptized not for his sins but for the sins of others and he does all of that without implying that he personally had sinned and so theologically his baptism for the forgiveness of sins could be for the sin of the nation or is identifying with the nation and the people. So he can be baptized so that he can identify with you and me, and we can identify with him. And, of course, this leaves open a question of whether or not Jesus could have desired any personal forgiveness. And, of course, again, theologically, this would be problematic, and it would be problematic for the early church. But historically, it would not have been. And then there's one other possibility why he would come to be baptized, and that lies in the location, as we've already talked about, of where John was baptizing and the identification of what John was doing. And so the key to this is not just the water, 
as we've seen, the water and the spirit are closely connected, but the location, the River Jordan, and then the Exodus imagery of crossing over into the promised land. Jesus comes to this place again symbolically where the people, uh, the Hebrew people had crossed into the promised land. And in this view, Jesus was baptized to prepare himself to cross over into the kingdom, to lead others into the kingdom. For him, this is an anointing. Just as the, uh, the kings of Israel were anointed, son of God, this is his anointing, and now he is entering into the kingdom that he will possess, and those who will follow him will do the same. And so by being baptized, Jesus was saying in a prophetic act what he also proclaimed in word, that the kingdom of God has come and is among you. And so what is certain is that Jesus' baptism represented a fundamental break, a watershed, no pun intended, <laughs> it was a watershed event, and it was a life-changing event for him and for others who would follow him. And once he's been baptized, he begins his ministry by announcing. Remember, when in all the Gospels say, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he announces that the kingdom of God has come when he says, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And so with that, we will come next week and see more about the good news. We're gonna, uh, Walt will be back and talk to us about Jesus and John and insights based on uh, the Gospel of John. What, what was Jesus doing before his baptism and also um, between his baptism and the start of his own ministry. And so there's lots to be mined there, and I know you'll enjoy being back here with Walt next week.